Well, good morning. Um, give you a chance to finish your nattering. Uh, as Lou said, my name is Dan, um, and uh, we're going to continue in our series in Colossians in a moment. Uh, but let's just pray together uh, before we do that. Father, thank you that you are a God who we can know because you're a God who is pleased to make yourself known to us. And you're a God who's spoken, who's revealed things about who you are. Thank you that we have um, your word in in front of us now and the opportunity to to read it together in freedom and to hear uh, from you in it. And we pray that you would speak, whether we've never heard about Jesus before or whether we've read the whole Bible through multiple times, we pray that you would speak afresh by your Spirit, enlarge our vision of Jesus, stretch our understanding of your salvation plan as we open your word now. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin by, with two questions, really. Uh, how big is your gospel, and how big is your Jesus? If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then what's your view of him? Is he irrelevant, insignificant, uh, or a disappointment maybe, unable to meet your needs? If you are following Jesus this morning, then what is our view of him? Is it possible we, we've bought into a shrunk down miniature Jesus? The kind of Jesus our culture would just about tolerate. And how big is our gospel? Uh, people talk, don't they, about the kind of classic elevator pitch. You've got a couple of minutes, well, I suppose it depends how tall the building is, really. Um, but you've got to, or how fast the lift. But you've got some time uh, in, in a lift with someone, and you kind of, they said, what's the gospel? And you kind of got this short amount of time. What would you say? How big is it? How far does it reach? How wide does it stretch? How big is your gospel? Uh, well, let's get into the passage for this morning. Uh, we're on page 1182, if you want to follow in the Blue Church Bibles. Uh, and we're picking up where we left off last last week. And remember, last week we were reading about this uh, this opportunity we have to get to know God better and all kinds of things through there. Uh, some of us might remember the challenge you gave, that we could read Colossians this week uh, in, a, in a different translation, maybe. Uh, don't forget that. It would be a, a great thing to do. Uh, Paul, who wrote this letter, has just been writing about his prayer for the Colossian Christians, which he concludes by praying that they will be giving joyful thanks to God the Father, who, picking up in verse 13 of Colossians 1, Colossians 1 verse 13, God the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, you might have spotted that this is a passage about one person, the Son. And what a passage it is. Verses 15 to 20, described by most commentators as a hymn. Uh, It's a section that stands out as different from the letter surrounding it. So whilst being tied, uh, very clearly tied in to what has gone before and what will follow, it also stands alone, like this kind of hymn. It's not easy to conclude whether Paul, who wrote this letter, uh, originally wrote the so-called hymn contained in this section as well. He may well have done, uh, or he might be quoting uh, from another source, perhaps modifying it to fit with the themes of this letter. It doesn't really matter, because either way, Paul included it, and he did so for a reason. It would appear that there was some false teaching uh, in the church, around in the church to whom Paul was writing. And from these verses, at least, uh, we can deduce that the false teaching questioned the exclusivity of Jesus, the Son. And we pick up hints of this in in chapter 2. For example, in verse 8 of chapter 2, and we'll we'll see more, obviously, later in the series. Verse 8 of chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And this, combined with other verses in chapter 2, would suggest false teachers were spreading the lie that the Colossian Christians needed Jesus and the spiritual forces. Jesus and angels. As uh, one scholar, Doug Moo, writes, it was questioning Christ's exclusive role in providing spiritual growth and security and, and thereby his exclusive role in the universe at large. They were kind of saying, well, these, this spirit world exists. These spirits are here in the cosmos. Let's kind of please them as well. Let's have them all. Let's look to them for some of our fullness. But in this section of the letter, this false teaching is smashed head on in the clearest possible terms. And this has got to be one of the high points of the Bible, uh, of the whole Bible, uh, and therefore quite challenging to cover in, in just um, two hours or whatever it is I'm meant to be finished within. Um, and uh, the central character, of course, is the Son. We know that the Son refers to Jesus, the Christ. I want to begin by exploring what we learn about the Son's essential being. What do we learn about who he is? And specifically, what do we learn about who he is in relation to the Father? Well, we see that he's the Son of the Father. Uh, that's clear. He's the Son of the Eternal Father, the Eternal Son. Of the eternal Father. We saw uh, last week in verse 13 that he's loved by the Father. It's a relationship of love. But we see uh, the first verse of this week's passage in verse 15, we see that he's the image of the Father. And later on we'll see he's the fullness of the Father. The image of the Father and the fullness of the Father. So verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now we kind of uh, all know what an image is. Uh, an image, I think, an image is, is something that looks like or, or represents something else. 
in, uh, in the language that the Bible's written in, it's often used to speak about objects which are kind of images of, of other gods. Or uh, it could be used for like a coin, the portrait of the king stamped on the coin, the image of the king. But in relationship to God, and, and here kind of in, in Colossians, the most important uh, background to this is the account of creation of human beings. You don't need to turn to it, but I'm just going to read to you from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. There's a book of beginnings, that's what Genesis means. And uh, there it talks about God's creation of human beings. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So all humanity is created in the image of God. But the focus in Colossians, however, is on Christ's revelation of God. We're all created in the image of God. But he is the image. He's the image in accordance with which we're created. There's Christ who is the image of God. And then there's human beings who are created in that image. So uh, we read verses in, in, in the New Testament like John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Or Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God, then you need to look at the Son. The Son is God's ultimate self-revelation. And when the Son became the man, Jesus, we can see God in human form. Jesus is how God makes himself known. And that's rather exciting. Because you can very easily, in this country at least, access reliable accounts of what Jesus was like, what he did, what he said. And we can read those things in the Gospels, in the New Testament part of the Bible. If you find a Bible, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can read those things in the Gospel, and we're able to see exactly what God is like. You'll be reading about God, the Son. The Son is the image of the Father. And in the Son, verse 19 adds, is the fullness of the Father. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now this uh, could be an echo uh, of the temple language. The temple through the Old Testament part of the Bible was representing the place where God dwelt, the place where God's presence lived among his people. And then Jesus has come as the fulfillment of that. The New Testament's very clear that in Jesus is where God's presence dwells among his people. The fullness dwells in him. 
And this also, or instead, could be an answer to, to the Colossians being tempted to look elsewhere for their fullness. Paul's saying, seek fullness in Christ. Only in Christ can fullness be found. Uh, again, Moo says, all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found in Christ. All that can be known and experienced of God is to be found in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul will say, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. The argument there is, is don't look elsewhere. Don't look elsewhere. Where, where are you looking? Where am I looking? Are we looking to religion? Religious experience? Uh, religious performance, maybe? Christ plus my works? Christ plus how good I am at reading my Bible or praying or coming to church. Christ plus materialism or materialism instead of Christ. This is saying in Christ the fullness of God dwells. Look only to him in whom is the fullness of God. The Son is the image of the Father. The Son is the fullness of the Father. And let's move on to think about the relationship between the Son and his creation. Colossians 1 verse 15 again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things Hold together. I want to start this section by being clear about what the sun is not. The sun is not created. Sometimes uh, people get confused about the idea of the sun being the firstborn uh, and, and wrongly think, mistakenly think, that this means he's a part of the creation. But the sun is not a part of the creation, he's not created. It's really important that we, that we understand that the Son eternally existed with the Father. For one thing, the Father couldn't eternally be the Father, could he? But we see that in verses here in Colossians 1, like, For in him, in the Son, all things were created. All things have been created through him. He's before all things. There isn't anything that he didn't make. He's not part of the creation. Along with, for example, John 17, verse 24, Jesus, speaking to the Father, talks about how, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Uh, And even more explicitly, uh, some of us might be thinking of the opening verses of John's Gospel. Uh, We know from verses later on that the word here is speaking of the Son of Jesus, who, who could take on flesh as the man Jesus. In the beginning, John writes, was the word, the Son. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So when we read firstborn in Colossians, the point isn't that the son was born, and therefore there was a time when he was not. That's not what Colossians is saying. Okay, what is it saying then? The point is this. The Son is first. He came first. He takes first place always. He's not the firstborn of creation. Rather, he is the firstborn over all creation. 
Perhaps it's helpful for us to remember that in the culture of the day, different to ours, that the literal first-to-be-born son would have special status as the firstborn. He would be the heir. The firstborn gets the inheritance. The son is the firstborn over all creation. He's preeminent. He ranks top in the pecking order. We might pay extra respect to someone who's been around for a while, whether that's to someone who's simply older than us, who's been around longer in life than us, and therefore is usually far more wiser than we are, or whether that's someone in your workplace who's built up decades of experience on the job and the wisdom that comes from that experience. They've been at their game a long time. They know a thing or two. Well, the son has been around longer. The son has been around longest. He knows a thing or two more. He's the firstborn. And the striking emphasis uh, is placed in this passage on, on the spheres in which the son is first, as we'll see. Did you notice the amount of times the word all appears here as we read that? So firstborn equals supreme over, or maybe supreme over and prior to. The Son is supreme over and prior to all creation. For in him all things were created. In him all all things were created could be talking about the sense that he's the thing that created everything. He's the instrument by which all things were created, as uh, the old uh, NIV translates it, if you're reading there. It's quite possible, though, that that's not what's meant by the word in. Uh, that meaning is very pre- clearly present later when it talks about all things created through him. He is the agent, the instrument by which all things are created. But the in him could, in sen- could instead be in, in the sense of spheres, of areas. Christ is the one in whom all things were created. The creation is located in Christ. And now, before we get carried away, you're not meant to picture this great big bloated um, Jesus that, uh, that's kind of a huge bloated giant with loads of galaxies and, and planets inside him. That's, that's not the point of the image. But it's the kind of general point that all of God's creative work took place in him, in reference to him, in terms of him. It's a similar idea later in verse 14, in, in, earlier in verse 14. Our redemption is located in the Son. We have redemption if we're united in him. All things have their existence in connection with him. And as Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Christ is the centre of God's work, both in creation and redemption. And that all things includes the entire universe. And there's so much emphasis here on that, isn't there? Heaven and earth together equal everything. The whole created order, the universe. And then that's kind of reinforced by invisible and visible. Probably another way of saying the same thing. Things in heaven invisible, things on earth visible. Uh, The rulers, etc., most likely refer to spiritual beings, good and bad, The entire angelic realm. And we might not immediately recognize this category in our culture. Although the reality of the spiritual world is very much recognized in other cultures in our day. And it was very much apparent to the cultural context in which this letter was written. 
It could be that the false teaching in the church Paul was writing to could have been looking to, to spiritual beings for their fullness. Paul reminds them that the Son is supreme over these powers and they are utterly unable to rival him in any way. We might not think we recognize this spiritual reality, but when we reflect on some of the events we've seen recently, we might find it easier to admit the existence of evil forces at work in our world. Some in our church see more of the rotten fruit of these evil forces than others of us. Hidden darkness in our society, for example, such as the the trading in and exploitation of women for sex. These evil forces are around, but Jesus is supreme over them all. And in him, all things hold together. At beginning and end and present, we're seeing here. He's the beginning, he's the end we'll see, but he's present as well. All things hold together. The universe owes its existence and its togetherness to him. And it's not talking about some force uh, or aspect of God's character or concept. Not talking about laws of nature or, or something like that. None of these things, but a person. A person who has always existed, through whom and for whom all things created. A person in whom all things will find their fulfillment. A person who has entered his creation at a time and place in history, becoming a human man, living life, being crucified, rising again. The Son is the one in whom all things hold together. Why then don't we see this? This is a a tough question that we'll all ask sooner or later in life. If Jesus is so supreme, if Jesus is so over everything, why does my experience or in life seem to suggest that he's not? Not to mention the experiences of others that I might observe. And, and there's so many shapes this question can take. If Jesus is supreme over creation, how come disease, decay or death can cause so much destruction in me or someone I love? If Jesus has triumphed over evil... Why does it appear as if evil forces are behind some tragic situation in my family or or wider world? If Jesus is holding all things together, does the fact that I'm still waiting mean that he's forgotten me or rejected me? If Jesus is so outstandingly before and above everything, Why do my colleagues at school or in the ward or the office laugh at me or mock me or treat me with sympathy for believing in him? The thing is, out there, Jesus doesn't appear at all supreme often. Out there, Jesus often seems weak and distant, unable, uncaring. Why is this? How can we hold the reality of Colossians 1 and our experience together? And kind of in answering that question, which is a tough question, perhaps it's helpful to remember that there is a now and a not yet dimension to the kingdom of the Son. 
In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has brought about his kingdom. It's here. It's begun. And yet it's not here in all its fullness. We live in an in-between age. And the New Testament recognizes this tension between the now and not yet. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 recognizes that Christ has not yet put all his enemies under his feet. But he will do. He will do. Mike Reeves, uh, speaking on Hebrews 1, said, When we come to Christ, we're not talking about my hobby horse. The media impress Christ functionally irrelevant, or at best an optional smear to go on top of real life. Out there, it really doesn't feel like it's Christ's world. Christ doesn't necessarily inform the structure of this reality. Jesus is an optional package or imaginary friend for sados. Does Christ have anything to do with those people, that tree? Uh, and Mike Reeves says, so before we go too far in this, uh, this conference, uh, Hebrews tells us we're talking about no piffling little Christlet. Um, no, he's the heir of all things and sustaining the universe by the word of his power. Whether or not it looks to us now like the sun reigns supreme over all things, his supreme status and reign will one day be seen plainly by all. One day every knee will bow. One day sickness and death and suffering will be no more. This is the direction things are heading. We don't see it yet. But we've been given insight into the mind of God, his universal plan, the ultimate goal to which he's sovereignly working, that the whole of creation reconciled and brought under the rule of the sun. That's where this bus is going, if we want to get on board it or not. But it's God's plan, we read in Ephesians, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. For those who have, F.F. Bruce says, for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. That's a bit on the relation between the son and his creation. Let's finally think about the son and his mission. Picking up from verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The, the language of head uh, in the ancient world was kind of talking about the, the kind of governing member of the body that, that's controlling it and providing for its life and sustenance. Christ, uh, is, as someone has said, is the locus of the church's unity and coherence, the source of the church's sustenance and direction. It may well be that some uh, among the Colossian Christians were falsely teaching that the ultimate spiritual experience had to be found in places in addition to Christ. But Paul is saying this is not the case. He's the head of the body and the church. As he's supreme over creation, he's supreme over the church. He's the one we must look to and he alone is the one we must look to. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. We've already kind of seen how he's the beginning in terms of being the first in time. But here he's talking as well about the firstborn from among the dead, from the resurrection. 
And uh, in Corinthians, uh, it was kind of, there's lots of uh, links closely in this passage, as you'd expect. But in Corinthians, um, in chapter 15, we read about Christ. Uh, they're kind of talking about, has Jesus been raised? That's the kind of big question in 1 Corinthians 15. Has Jesus been raised? If he hasn't, we're wasting our time. Uh, we're kind of deluded. If he has, then there's significant kind of implications for that. And in Corinthians, Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's a similar idea to him being the firstborn from among the dead, the first fruits. And the picture there was a picture of, of harvest. If you kind of, uh, in an agricultural culture, which we're not so much, um, but you, know, you kind of take the first fruits and the harvest, it guarantees that the rest of it is going to come. It's a picture that, that shows you that the rest of the harvest is coming. And in that sense, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. His resurrection shows and guarantees and promises that he will bring others with him, that he's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, as Romans puts it. Now, maybe we're sceptical about this. Um, if you are, then I just encourage you to look about into the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. That, that's kind of a, a place to go and look for evidence. Come and talk to, to me or anyone you've kind of seen up here afterwards, uh, and we'll kind of help you and point you into some things to think about on that. But for those of us who are not so sceptical, those of us who have put our hope in the risen Jesus, that he will rise us also, he will raise us also, we kind of have hope here to carry on. Uh, our series is called Trust Christ and Carry On. Well, here's a reason to carry on. Because Jesus has risen, the firstborn from among the dead. He will raise us on the last day. That was his promise. That's what he's doing. This is his master plan. So we can carry on looking to this hope. Even when our experience doesn't seem to show that he's the sovereign, supreme ruler in control. We can carry on looking to this hope. In everything, in creation, in redemption, in the new creation, he is supreme. Let's uh, pick up again uh, Colossians 1 from verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Again, we've got this emphasis that just as everything exists through him, so in redemption, in rescue, through him, it all comes. Through him, through no one else. Don't be tempted to look elsewhere. Though created through him and for him, we kind of see, though, don't we, that all things no longer bear that relationship that they were intended to have. We've kind of observed already, it doesn't look like Jesus is the supreme over all creation. Well, his kind of mission is to reconcile all things. When we talk about reconcile and reconciliation, we're normally talking about restoring a broken relationship. Restoring, in the Bible, we're talking about restoring fellowship between God and people who've rebelled against him. But this passage is clearly not just referring to the reconciliation of, of those human beings who accept God's gift of reconciliation. The scope of this reconciliation goes 
far beyond just human beings. It turns out this is not just about me or you. Here, all created things are included. We kind of see hints of that in in Romans chapter 8 as well. I won't read it now for time's sake. But through the Son, God reconciles all things by making peace through the Son's blood shed on the cross. It, It does not follow that all people will be reconciled in the end, what's sometimes called universal salvation. It's abundantly clear from the rest of the Bible that if we're to take part in this cosmic reconciliation, then we need to apply the blood of Jesus. We need to ask him. We need to trust in him. We need to look to him, ask him for his forgiveness and salvation. As verse 23 says, we need to not only start trusting, but continue in our faith, trust Christ and carry on trusting Christ. But sadly, there are those who, who will ultimately reject the son's offer of reconciliation. They will not be reconciled and they will not inherit the new creation. They will remain forever alienated from God, to use the language uh, in this passage, as the Colossian Christians once were before they were reconciled. The Bible speaks of a different destination for them. And as it is for human beings who reject to the end, so too will it be for the spiritual beings who rebel and don't submit to the Son's rule. As we'll see in chapter 2, his cross brings crushing defeat for them, not reconciliation. So my response and your response matters. And not just our initial response, but our ongoing response. Remember verse 23, if we continue in our faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So this passage is calling us to have an initial response to trust Christ. To say, I can't go anywhere else, I can't rely on myself, there's nowhere else I can go, but go to the Supreme Son who brings about the redemption. We, we, read, we heard about that last week. If you missed that, then do have a look online or speak to us. We, we can only go to him who brings about that rescue. Our initial response is to trust Christ. And we need to carry on trusting Christ. We need to have that ongoing response. And just very briefly, there's also some implications for us in the cosmic scope of the Son's mission. If the son's mission is to make peace through his blood to reconcile all things, then he's concerned not just about our individual relationships with him, but humans' relationships with each other. If the blood of Christ shed on the cross applies to that, which is clear from this passage it does, then we'll be concerned about working for peace and and restoration ourselves, which will include social justice. If the son's mission is to make peace through his blood to reconcile all things, then he's concerned not just about restoring and making humans whole, but the whole of his creation. If the blood of Christ shed on the cross applies to that, which is clear here it does, and in Romans 8 too, Romans 8 also. If the blood of Christ shed on the cross applies to that, then we'll be concerned about caring for the creation in which we live taking measures to slow down its decay, engaging with climate change and environmental issues. Let's face it, social justice and creation care are sometimes left for the weird Christians, the -the over-the-top ones. I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm not not actually saying you're weird, Sarah. Um, But that's what we think sometimes. Not that Sarah's weird, but that we kind of leave these issues alone. Someone else can deal with it. We can be guilty uh, of considering 
these aspects of the gospel as nice extras. But Jesus died for them. The son shed his blood on the cross in part to bring ultimate social justice and renewed creation. Apparently, it's not up to us to decide how important these issues are. They're included in the mission of the Son. Am I on board with that? That said, the Son's primary objective in this cosmic reconciliation is to reconcile humans to himself and his Father. And we're also invited to get on board with that. Uh, we're, we're going we're to stop now, I think. But kind of, as you kind of go through the passage, we're coming back to this passage next week. But as you go through this passage, you see this Paul strenuously contending uh, to be involved in this mission of bringing people to God, and that's something we're called to as well uh, to join in with the Son's mission. Just want to finish by thinking about some things we've kind of gone through just to get through in, in the time that we had. But, but actually some really, uh, really um, sobering and uh, um, important, significant things. And we'll be celebrating them a bit later as we share the meal. But we're talking about the death of Jesus, uh, dying his physical body. We're talking about um, his blood being shed to make that peace. I just want to finish by a reflection on how stark that, that, that image is when you think that this is the eternal son by whom, through whom, for whom, all things created, the sovereign over the whole universe, should, as we read in Philippians 2 earlier, should humble himself to become a man and uh, to the point of death, death on a cross, so that he can bring us to God. And uh, as we kind of share that meal later, let's just really worship in our hearts, uh, as maybe we might want to do now as well. That this is, this is the son, the same son, who's supreme over the whole universe, is the one who came, humbled himself for us. Let's pray.